Chapter Ten, Part One of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed, by Alessandra Menzoni. Chapter Ten, Part One. There are times when the mind of the young especially, is so disposed that any external influence, however slight, suffices to call forth whatever has the appearance of virtuous self-sacrifice. As a scarcely expanded flower abandons itself negligently to its fragile stem, ready to yield its fragrance to the first breath of the zephyrs that float around. These moments, which others should regard with reverential awe, are exactly those which the wily and interested eagerly watch for and seize with avidity to fetter an unguarded will. On the perusal of this letter the prince instantly saw a door open to the fulfillment of his early and still cherished views. He therefore sent to Gertrude to come to him, and prepared to strike the iron while it was hot. Gertrude had no sooner made her appearance than, without raising her eyes towards her father, she threw herself upon her knees, scarcely able to articulate the word, Pardon. The prince beckoned to her to rise, and then, in a voice little calculated to reassure her, replied that it was not sufficient to desire and solicit forgiveness, for that was easy and natural enough to one who had been convicted of a fault, and dreaded its punishment. That, in short, it was necessary she should deserve it. Gertrude, in a subdued and trembling voice, asked what she must do. To this question the prince, for we cannot find it in our heart at this moment to give him the title of father, made no direct reply, but proceeded to speak at some length on Gertrude's fault, in words which grated on the feelings of the poor girl like the drawing of a rough hand over a wound. He then went on to say that even if— supposing he ever had had at the first any intention of settling her in the world she herself had now opposed an insuperable obstacle to such a plan since a man of honour as he was could never bring himself to give to any gentleman a daughter who had shown such a specimen of her character his wretched auditor was completely overwhelmed and then the prince gradually softening his voice and language proceeded to say that for every fault there was a remedy and a hope of mercy, that hers was one, the remedy for which, was very distinctly indicated, that she ought to see in this sad event a warning that a worldly life was too full of danger for her. "'Ah, yes!' exclaimed Gertrude, excited by fear, subdued by a sense of shame, and overcome at the instant by a momentary tenderness of spirit. "'Ah!' "'You see it, too,' replied the prince, instantly taking up her words. "'Well, let us say no more of what is past. All is cancelled. You have taken the only honourable and suitable course that remained for you. But, since you have chosen it willingly and cheerfully, it rests with me to make it pleasant to you in every possible way. I have the power of turning it to your advantage, and giving all the merit of the action to yourself.' and I'll engage to do it for you. So saying, he rang a little bell that stood on the table, and said to the servant who answered it, The princess and the young prince, immediately. 
Then, turning to Gertrude, he continued, "'I wish them to share in my satisfaction at once, and I wish you immediately to be treated by all as is fit and proper. You have experienced a little of the severe parent, but from henceforth you shall find me an affectionate father.' Gertrude stood thunderstruck at these words. One moment she wondered how that, yes, which had escaped her lips, could be made to mean so much. Then she thought, was there no way of retracting, of restricting the sense? But the prince's conviction seemed so unshaken, his joy so sensitively jealous, and his benignity so conditional that Gertrude dared not utter a word to disturb them in the slightest degree. The party, summoned, quickly made their appearance, and, on seeing Gertrude, regarded her with an expression of surprise and uncertainty. But the prince, with a cheerful and loving countenance, which immediately met with an answering look from them, said, Behold, the wandering sheep, and I intend this to be the last word that shall awaken sad remembrances. Behold the consolation of the family. Gertrude no longer needs advisers, for she has voluntarily chosen what we desired for her good. She has determined. She has given me to understand that she has determined. Here Gertrude raised towards her father a look between terror and supplication, as if imploring him to pause, but he continued boldly, that she has determined to take the veil. "'Bravo! Well done!' exclaimed the mother and son, turning at the same time to embrace Gertrude, who received these congratulations with tears, which were interpreted as tears of satisfaction. The prince then expatiated upon what he would do to render the situation of his daughter pleasant, and even splendid. He spoke of the distinction with which she would be regarded in the monastery and the surrounding country, that she would be like a princess, the representative of the family, that, as soon as ever her age would allow of it, she would be raised to the first dignity, and in the meanwhile would be under subjection only in name. The princess and the young prince renewed their congratulations and applauses, while poor Gertrude stood as if possessed by a dream. "'We had better fix the day for going to Monza to make our request of the abbess,' said the prince." How pleased she will be! I venture to say that all the monastery will know how to estimate the honor which Gertrude does them. Likewise, but why not go this very day? Gertrude will be glad to take an airing. Let us go, then, said the princess. I will go and give orders, said the young prince. But, suggested Gertrude submissively. Softly, softly, replied the prince. Let her decide. Perhaps she does not feel inclined today and would rather delay till tomorrow. Tell me, would you prefer today or tomorrow? Tomorrow, answered Gertrude in a faint voice, thinking it something that she could get a little longer respite. Tomorrow, pronounced the prince solemnly, she has decided that we go tomorrow. In the meanwhile, I will go and ask the vicar of the nuns to name a day for the examination. No sooner said than done, the prince took his departure, and absolutely went himself, no little act of condescension, to the vicar, and obtained a promise that he would attend her the day after tomorrow. During the remainder of this day Gertrude had not two moments of quiet. 
She wished to have calmed her mind after so many scenes of excitement, to clear and arrange her thoughts, to render an account to herself of what she had done, and of what she was about to do, determine what she wished, and for a moment at least retard that machine, which once started was proceeding so precipitously. But there was no opening. Occupations succeeded one another without interruption, one treading upon the heels of another. Immediately after this solemn interview she was conducted to her mother's dressing-room, there, under her superintendence, to be dressed and adorned by her own waiting-maid. Scarcely was this business completed when dinner was announced. Gertrude was greeted on her way by the bows of the servants, who expressed their congratulations for her recovery, and, on reaching the dining-room, she found a few of their nearest friends, who had been hastily invited to do her honour, and to share in the general joy for the two happy events, her restored health, and her choice of a vocation. The young bride, as the novices were usually distinguished, and Gertrude was saluted on all sides by this title on her first appearance, the young bride had enough to do to reply to all the compliments that were addressed to her. She was fully sensible that every one of these answers was an assent and confirmation. Yet how could she reply otherwise? Shortly after dinner came the driving hour, and Gertrude accompanied her mother in a carriage, with two uncles who had been among the guests. After the usual tour they entered the Strada Marina, which crossed the space now occupied by the public gardens, and was the rendezvous of the gentry, who drove out for recreation after the labors of the day. The uncles addressed much of their conversation to Gertrude, as was to be expected on such a day, and one of them, who seemed to be acquainted with everybody, every carriage, every livery, and had every moment something to say about Signor this and Lady that, suddenly checked himself, and turning to his niece, "'Ah, you young rogue!' exclaimed he. "'You are turning your back on all these follies. You are one of the saints. We poor worldly fellows are caught in the snare, but you are going to lead a religious life and go to heaven in a carriage.' As evening approached they returned home and the servants, hastily descending to meet them with lights, announced several visitors who were awaiting their return. The rumor had spread, and friends and relations crowded to pay their respects. On entering the drawing-room, the young bride became the idol, the sole object of attention, the victim. Everyone wished to have her to himself. One promised her pleasures, another visits, one spoke of Madre this, her relation, another of Madre that an acquaintance. One extolled the climate of Monza, another enlarged with great eloquence upon the distinctions she would there enjoy. Others, who had not yet succeeded in approaching Gertrude while thus besieged, stood watching their opportunity to address her, and felt a kind of regret until they had discharged their duty in this matter. By degrees the party dispersed, and Gertrude remained alone with the family. At last, said the prince, I have had the pleasure of seeing my daughter treated as becomes her rank. I must confess that she has conducted herself very well, and has shown that she will not be prevented making the first figure, and maintaining the dignity of the family. They then went to supper, so as to retire early that they might be ready in good time in the morning. Gertrude, annoyed, piqued, and at the same time a little puffed up by the compliments and ceremonies of the day, 
at this moment remembered all she had suffered from her jailer, and seeing her father so ready to gratify her in everything but one, she resolved to make use of this disposition for the indulgence of at least one of the passions which tormented her. She displayed a great unwillingness again to be left alone with her maid, and complained bitterly of her treatment. "'What?' said the prince. "'Did she not treat you with respect? "'Tomorrow I will reward her as she deserves. "'Leave it to me, and I will get you entire satisfaction. "'In the meanwhile, a child with whom I am so well pleased "'must not be attended by a person she dislikes.' "'So saying, he called another servant, "'and gave her orders to wait upon Gertrude, "'who, though certainly enjoying the satisfaction she received, "'was astonished at finding it so trifling.' in comparison with the earnest wishes she had felt beforehand. The thought that, in spite of her unwillingness, predominated in her imagination, was the remembrance of the fearful progress she had this day made toward her cloistral life, and the consciousness that to draw back now would require a far, far greater degree of courage and resolution than would have sufficed a few days before, and which even then she felt she did not possess. The woman appointed to attend her was an old servant of the family, who had formerly been the young prince's governess, having received him from the arms of his nurse, and brought him up until he was almost a young man. In him she had centred all her pleasures, all her hopes, all her pride. She was delighted at this day's decision, as if it had been her own good fortune, and Gertrude, at the close of the day, was obliged to listen to the congratulations, praises, and advice of this old woman. She told her of some of her aunts and near relations who had been very happy as nuns, because being of so high a family they had always enjoyed the first honors, and had been able to have a good deal of influence beyond the walls of the convent, so that, from their parlor, they had come off victorious in undertakings in which the first ladies of the land had been quite foiled. She talked to her about the visits she would receive. She would some day be seeing the Signor Prince with his bride, who must certainly be some noble lady and then not only the monastery but the whole country would be in excitement. The old woman talked while undressing Gertrude. She talked after she had lain down, and even continued talking after Gertrude was asleep. Youth and fatigue had been more powerful than cares. Her sleep was troubled, disturbed, and full of tormenting dreams, but was unbroken, until the shrill voice of the old woman aroused her to prepare for her journey to Monza. Up, up, Signora Bride! It is broad daylight, and you will want at least an hour to dress and arrange yourself. The Signora Princess is getting up. They awoke her four hours earlier than usual. The young prince has already been down to the stables and come back, and is ready to start whenever you are. The creature is as brisk as a hare, but he was always so from a child. I have a right to say so, I who have nursed him in my arms." but when he's once set a-going it won't do to oppose him, for though he is the best-tempered creature in the world, he sometimes gets impatient and storms. Poor fellow! One must pity him. It is all the effect of his temperament, and besides, this time there is some reason in it, because he is going to all this trouble for you. People must take care how they touch him at such times. He minds no one except the Signor Prince." but some day he will be the prince himself. May it be as long as possible first, however. Quick, quick, signorina, 
Why do you look at me as if you were bewitched? You ought to be out of your nest at this hour. At the idea of the impatient prince, all the other thoughts which had crowded into Gertrude's mind on awakening vanished before it like a flock of sparrows on the sudden appearance of a scarecrow. She instantly obeyed, dressed herself in haste, and after submitting to the decoration of her hair and person, went down to the salon where her parents and brother were assembled. She was then led to an armchair, and a cup of chocolate was brought to her, which in those days was a ceremony similar to that formerly in use among the Romans in presenting the toga virilis. When the carriage was at the door, the prince drew his daughter aside and said, "'Come, Gertrude, yesterday you had every attention paid you. Today you must overcome yourself. The point is now to make a proper appearance in the monastery and the surrounding country, where you are destined to take the first place. They are expecting you.' It is unnecessary to say that the prince had dispatched a message the preceding day to the lady abbess. "'They are expecting you.' and all eyes will be upon you. You must maintain dignity in an easy manner. The abbess will ask you what you wish, according to the usual form. You must reply that you request to be allowed to take the veil in the monastery, where you have been so lovingly educated, and have received so many kindnesses, which is the simple truth. You will pronounce these words with an unembarrassed air, for I would not have it said that you have been drawn in, and that you don't know how to answer for yourself. These good mothers know nothing of the past. It is a secret which must remain for ever buried in the family. Take care you don't put on a sorrowful or dubious countenance, which might excite any suspicion. Show of what blood you are. Be courteous and modest. But remember that there, away from the family, there will be nobody above you. Without waiting for a reply, the prince led the way, Gertrude, the princess, and the young prince following. And going downstairs, they seated themselves in the carriage. The snares and vexations of the world, and the happy, blessed life of the cloister, more especially for young people of noble birth, were the subjects of conversation during the drive. On approaching their destination, the prince renewed his instructions to his daughter, and repeated over to her several times the prescribed form of reply. On entering this neighborhood, Gertrude felt her heart beat violently, but her attention was suddenly arrested by several gentlemen, who stopped the carriage and addressed numberless compliments to her. Then, continuing their way, they drove slowly up to the monastery, amongst the inquisitive gazes of the crowds who had collected upon the road. When the carriage stopped before these well-known walls, and that dreaded door, Gertrude's heart beat still more violently. They alighted between two wings of bystanders, whom the servants were endeavoring to keep back, and the consciousness that the eyes of all were upon her compelled the unfortunate girl closely to study her behavior, but above all, those of her father kept her in awe, for in spite of the dread she had of them, she could not help every moment raising her eyes to his and like invisible reins they regulated every movement and expression of her countenance. After traversing the first court, they entered the second, where the door of the interior cloister was held open and completely blockaded by nuns. In the first row stood the abbess, surrounded by the eldest of the sisterhood. Behind them the younger nuns, promiscuously arranged, 
and some on tiptoe, and last of all the lay sisters mounted on stools. Here and there among them were seen the glancing of certain bright eyes and some little faces peeping out from between the cows. They were the most active and daring of the pupils, who, creeping in and pushing their way between none and none, had succeeded in making an opening where they might also see something. Many were the acclamations of the crowd, and many the hands held up in token of welcome and exultation. They reached the door, and Gertrude found herself standing before the Lady Abbess. After the first compliments, the superior, with an air between cheerfulness and solemnity, asked her what she wanted in that place, where there was no one who would deny her anything. "'I am here,' began Gertrude, but on the point of pronouncing the words which would almost irrevocably decide her fate, she hesitated a moment, and remained with her eyes fixed on the crowd before her. At this moment she caught the eye of one of her old companions, who looked at her with a mixed air of compassion and malice, which seemed to say, "'Ah, the boaster is caught!' This sight, awakening more vividly in her mind her old feelings, restored to her also a little of her former courage, and she was on the point of framing a reply far different to the one which had been dictated to her, when, raising her eyes to her father's face, almost to try her strength, she encountered there such a deep disquietude, such a threatening impatience, that, urged by fear, she continued with great precipitation, as if flying from some terrible object. "'I am here to request permission to take the religious habit in this monastery, where I have been so lovingly educated.' The abbess quickly answered that she was very sorry in this instance that the regulations forbade her giving an immediate reply, which must come from the general votes of the sisters, and for which she must obtain permission from her superiors, that, nevertheless, Gertrude knew well enough the feelings entertained towards her in that place, to foresee what the answer would be, and that in the meanwhile no regulation prevented the abbess and the sisterhood from manifesting the great satisfaction they felt in hearing her make such a request. There then burst forth a confused murmur of congratulations and acclamations. Presently, Large dishes were brought filled with sweetmeats, and were offered first to the bride, and afterward to her parents. While some of the nuns approached to greet Gertrude, others complimenting her mother, and others the young prince, the abbess requested the prince to repair to the grate of the parlor of conference, where she would wait upon him. She was accompanied by two elders, and on his appearing, "'Signor Prince,' said she, to obey the regulations, to perform an indispensable formality, though in this case, nevertheless I must tell you, that whenever a young person asks to be admitted to take the veil, the superior, which I am unworthily, is obliged to warn the parents, that if by any chance they should have constrained the will of their daughter, they are liable to excommunication. You will excuse me. Oh, certainly, certainly, reverend mother, I admire your exactness. It is only right. But you need not doubt. Oh, think, Signor Prince, I only spoke from absolute duty. For the rest, certainly, certainly, Lady Abbess. Having exchanged these few words, the two interlocutors reciprocally bowed and departed, as if neither of them felt willing to prolong the interview, each retiring to his own party 
the one outside, the other within the threshold of the cloister. "'Now, then, let us go,' said the prince. "'Gertrude will soon have plenty of opportunity of enjoying as much as she pleases the society of these good mothers. For the present we have put them to enough inconvenience.' And making a low bow, he signified his wish to return. The party broke up, exchanged salutations, and departed. During the drive home Gertrude felt little inclination to speak. Alarmed at the step she had taken, ashamed at her want of spirit, and vexed with others as well as herself, she tried to enumerate the opportunities which still remained of saying no, and languidly and confusedly resolved in her own mind that in this or that, or the other instance, she would be more open and courageous. Yet, in the midst of these thoughts, her dread of her father's frown still held its full sway, so that once, when, by a stealthy glance at his face, she was fully assured that not a vestige of anger remained, when she even saw that he was perfectly satisfied with her, she felt quite cheered, and experienced a real but transient joy. On their arrival, a long toilette, dinner, visits, walks, a conversazione, and supper, followed each other in rapid succession. After supper the prince introduced another subject, the choice of a godmother. This was the title of the person who, being solicited by the parents, became the guardian and escort of the young novice, in the interval between the request and the admission, an interval frequently spent in visiting churches, public palaces, conversazioni, villas, and temples, in short, everything of note in the city and its environs, so that the young people, before pronouncing the irrevocable vow, might be fully aware of what they were giving up. "'We must think of a godmother,' said the prince, "'for to-morrow the vicar of the nuns will be here for the usual formality of an examination, and shortly afterward Gertrude will be proposed in council for the acceptance of the nuns.' In saying this he turned toward the princess, and she, thinking he intended it as an invitation to make some proposal, was beginning, "'There should be—' But the prince interrupted her. "'No, no, Signora Princess. The godmother should be acceptable above all to the bride. And though universal custom gives the selection to the parents, yet Gertrude has so much judgment and such excellent discernment that she richly deserves to be made an exception.' and here, turning to Gertrude with the air of one who was bestowing a singular favor, he continued, "'Any one of the ladies who were at the conversazioni this evening possesses all the necessary qualifications for the office of godmother to a person of your family, and any one of them, I am willing to believe, will think it an honor to be made choice of. Do you choose for yourself?' Gertrude was fully sensible that to make a choice was but to renew her consent, yet the proposition was made with so much dignity that a refusal would have borne the appearance of contempt and an excuse of ignorance or fastidiousness. She therefore took this step also, and named a lady who had chiefly taken her fancy that evening, that is to say, one who had paid her the most attention, who had most applauded her, and who had treated her with those familiar, affectionate, and engaging manners which on the first acquaintanceship counterfeit a friendship of long-standing. "'An excellent choice!' exclaimed the prince, who had exactly wished and expected it. Whether by art or chance, it happened 
just as when a card-player, holding up to view a pack of cards, bids the spectator think of one, and then will tell him which it is, having previously disposed them in such a way that but one of them can be seen. This lady had been so much with Gertrude all the evening, and had so entirely engaged her attention, that it would have required an effort of imagination to think of another. These attentions, however, had not been paid without a motive. The lady had, for some time, fixed her eyes upon the young prince as a desirable son-in-law. Hence she regarded everything belonging to the family as her own, and therefore it was natural enough that she should interest herself for her dear Gertrude, no less than for her nearest relatives. End of chapter 10, part 1